From the University of Kentucky, it's a long story short. We have a riddle. What does Brazil, Malta, Germany, and Lithuania have that the United States does not? It's nothing to do with soccer, the Olympics, global warming, or even beer. Brazil, Malta, Germany, and Lithuania are four of 22 nations that currently have a female president or head of state. Currently, the field of candidates for the 2016 presidential election includes two women. National leadership appears to be diversifying, yet only men have occupied the Oval Office. Long Story Short meets today to ask why that there has not been a female president in the 240-year history of presidential leadership. I'm Anastasia Kerwood. I've been at the University of Kentucky for one year. This is my second year, and I teach African-American women's and gender history. I'm Francie Chasson Lopez. I've been at the University of Kentucky for 26 years. And I teach um, women, gen women and gender in Latin America. My area of specialty is Latin America, but I also teach about biography and history, a subject I'm particularly interested in. And um, I've worked for a long time with the Gender and Women's Studies program and the History Department and Latin American Studies. Well, I'm Wendy Sands. I'm a guest here, uh, arrived today from New England. And um, I used to work years ago on the Shirley Chisholm campaign. Excellent. So, you know, as we know, we're here to talk about women and the presidency. Most importantly, why is it taking so long <laughs> for us, uh, and us, of course, United States citizens, to elect a female president? And you bring up Shirley Chisholm. When was, when was that? When was she running? That was 1972. So we're not only talking just about a female, a woman running for office, but we're also talking about an African American running in the, you know, 1972. Exactly. Wow. How? And <laughs> and what, you know, what was she trying? I mean, what was what was she trying to do? So Shirley Chisholm, contrary to popular opinion or uh, what some people said at the time, Shirley Chisholm was not crazy, and she didn't actually think that she would win, but she liked to say that she was running to win because uh, she ran her campaign as if she wanted to win, and she did want to win. What she really wanted out of the whole thing was to push the uh, D Democratic Party and, uh, and then also say she had gotten the nomination, which was unlikely, but say she did. Um, she wanted to push the entire U.S. polity um, to accepting and empowering women and black people as political actors. So. So what she did, um, her whole strategy was to get delegates, to win delegates in state primaries. And, um, and then if, when she went to the convention for uh, the Democratic National Convention in Miami, then she wanted to have some sort of currency to wheel and deal with. Uh, the, the currency at national conventions at that point when the nominee was not actually chosen the currency was delegates, and so she was going to release her delegates eventually to whoever followed the program that she thought was most appropriate. So I just saw you um, motion to Wendy when you said Miami. So Wendy, were you in Miami? I was 25 years old, and I was there. Well, tell us about it. What was it like? <laughs> oh <my goodness. laughs> um, I assume it was hot. You can I start was, there. I met Warren Beatty. Okay. Oh, wow, nice. I know, and, and and Julie Christie, uh -huh. you know, who was his girlfriend at the time, I believe. 
Um, so I was a 25-year-old. I was kind of, you know, working as Shirley's uh, Massachusetts treasurer. Um, so that that helped me get to the convention and watch the political machine at work. Would so, you? Well, I want to know what it was. What was it like in the in 1972, being a young woman in politics? I thought I was supposed to be there. I just felt women were up and coming, and we were going to be fine. But it doesn't seem that way now. But Shirley was a representative for years. I mean, I grew up in New York City, and she was, you know, really well known in New York City. And being in college and high school, Shirley Chisholm was a, you know common name in New York, so she had a long political career before. Yes, exactly. Um, and, and you asked, I guess, why? Why Chisholm? And she was a force of nature. It, her, her personality and her temperament were incredibly magnetic, and also she would brag about this, and I think, I don't think it was a, a pose. I think she was absolutely sincere. She said she had no fear. So she credited that with being a part of what made her temperament able to go up and, and run for president. And people really did think she was crazy. Uh, uh, they, they really did. Um, in fact, um, part of Richard uh, Nixon's dirty tricks during Watergate, somebody put out a fake press release that said that Chisholm was in a mental hospital and uh, was found uh, you know, jabbering wow. to herself wandering the streets. But obviously, Shirley Chisholm wasn't completely crazy. After all, as Dr. Chazen Lopez stated earlier in the show, she had achieved a very regional success. She was a household name in New York. So where was the disconnect between Chisholm's regional success and her national success? Well, she was misbehaving. It was okay to be a representative from Brooklyn, right? But um, it wasn't okay to think that she could, a black woman in 1972, become president of the United States. So that was, you know, not acceptable at, at that moment. You know, I taught a course on um, women in power in history. We went back to the Middle Ages and the Queens, and we got to trilogism, and I showed the video. There's a um, video on her life, and the students were actually flabbergasted. They never heard of her, they couldn't believe it. They were like, well, how did this happen? You know, how come we don't know about this? So it's unbelievable. Do we still have that divide today? Do you think that we still have this divide, this uh, women misbehaving if they want to seek public office at the national level? I mean, so currently we have Hillary Clinton running, we have Carly Fiorina running, and I don't know if anyone has necessarily said that they are crazy or, or questioned their mental stability with any sort of... Uh, veracity or legitimacy to that argument, but we certainly are picking away at the edges of them and that they're misbehaving in other ways and that they are un, not trustworthy and that they've maybe uh, squirreled away some emails or ran Hewlett Packard into the ground. So are we still dealing with these questions of misbehaving women? Yeah, well, uh, Miriam Schmoll did a study for Time Magazine and she interviewed a uh, number of very, very well-known women and asked them, you know, why, don't we ha why haven't we had a female president? And uh, w there are some really important answers that came up, and one of them was, we still have this image that if a woman behaved aggressively and very outspokenly, which we see really positively in men, 
that's fine for um, our, you know, Ted Cruz or or whoever else you want to, um, or Donald Trump, but it's not okay for Hillary Clinton. It's not okay for a woman to act as, you know, so assertively. And we still have this this stereotype of how. In fact, there was a there was the interview the other day on with Claire McCaskill on TV, and she was trying to explain how she was trying to be an aggressive senator at the same time still act ladylike. Uh, so and that's the word that she used. So being aggressive is anti-feminine or anti-ladylike. So the stereotypes are still mm -hmm. very much. So let's go, but let's go back to 1972 real quick with with what we're talking about here. I mean, how was she perceived as a woman yeah, then? So was she able to be as aggressive as, say, Hillary Clinton might how, be perceived today? How are you, all, how is the entire sort of uh, cadre of, of the Chisholm campaign received in Miami? Oh, we were crackpots. Uh -huh. Okay. <laughs> all of you. All of us. Every one of us. Um, and But Shirley was ramrod straight and shot from the hip and you know, she was just strong. But here you've got this woman and um, all of her supporters coming from the north, really to the south for this conference in 1972. Was it about her being a woman, or was it about her being black, or was it both? What was the, I mean, what were or you thinking? Or being from the north. Yeah. Or being crazy. <laughs> right, yes. I mean, what was the... All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> she was building a coalition. And... Um, she, what she really wanted was a coalition of, of um, people fighting racism and fighting sexism. She wanted poor people, um, she wanted young people, a multi-generational uh, base of support, and she tried to put it all together. It didn't hold together. There was actually terrible infighting in the campaign, especially many white women in her campaign did not um, and, and black men in the campaign, especially black power activists, experienced a lot of conflict uh, back and forth. And it's, it's uh, I hesitate to say that because it's a bit of a cliche, but she tried, to, it was not enough time, not enough communication. She tried to put those two together and it, and it didn't work. So she said that she lost weight during the campaign because of that uh, infighting, um, and it was her biggest regret of the campaign was that she couldn't put keep that coalition together. Um, she said, if it, was a white, if it was a white woman running, I would have been okay. If I was a black man running, I would have been okay. But a black woman, it couldn't hold together. So she was really speaking to, again, some of these long-held um, prejudices and issues that we have dealt with throughout American history of sort of this hierarchy of gender and race. Yes, and simultaneous. Simultaneous hierarchy of gender and race. So, so um, this goes way back. Earlier t this morning, I was talking about the Fifteenth Amendment, which uh, uh, created universal male suffrage. And the students' hands shot up. They said, "Well, this, so this says that the right of somebody to vote can't be abridged on the basis of race." Well, what about women? I said, "No." Right. That was actually a conflict at that point. Was that uh, women wanted? The vote at that point, and um, and 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 uh, and it didn't happen. It was just universal male suffrage, um, so black men could vote. Um, and and it's worth remembering right now that women have only have not been able to vote nationwide 
in this nation for very long for less it's less than a hundred years yes so first of all we're dealing with the lack of, of legal ability for women to vote and hold office so this is a good um, point yeah. here to transition a little bit this, I mean what we're talking about so far is so based in the United States yes. all of the problems that the United States has in electing a woman but you've got a different history for us don't right, you? absolutely. You know, my students are just nonplussed when they find out we've had 10 presidents in, female presidents in Latin America, and if we include the English-speaking Caribbean, we're up to 13. Wow. And, like, what? How is that po- And not only that, we now have had two women re-elected in Latin America, Christina Fernandez and Michelle Bachelet. And so, um, no, sorry. Three, Christina Fernandez, Michelle, and Dilma Rousseff, who was just recently reelected, and it's a whole different ball game. So, what's yeah. happening there? That's not happening right. here. <laughs> and the vote comes much later. In uh, well, in the first vote in Latin America comes in Ecuador in 1929. Unbelievably, although Ecuador is very advanced at the moment, um, but it, they give the vote because they think women are going to be vote conservatively according to how their priests tell them. So the vote is given for many different reasons, but the vote begins to come around in Latin American countries in the 1930s, 1940s, and Mexico, not till 1953, women can vote in presidential elections. What happens? Well, I think it, what happened in the 1980s, there was a, a huge mobilization. 1970s, 90% of Latin America was under military or authoritarian rule. And so in the 1980s, you see a huge mobilization of women of women um, for democracy. The Chilean women's, their um, uh, motto was democracy in the home and democracy in the country. If you have democracy in the home, you'll have it in the country. And they were fighting Pinochet, not any, you know, just anybody. Right. Right. Um, and the mothers of the Plaza Mayo went out. So there's a mobilization there. There was a mobilization also because women were most affected by the um, strictures that neoliberalism imposed on, and so women organized in um, urban neighborhoods and in the countryside in order to defend their rights. And then we saw a lot of revolutions going on in the, in the 1980s, late 1970s, 1980s Central America, in where 30% of the armies were women. This is unheard of. So you have And here we've got today the first women uh, uh, being... Uh, Going through the um, officers' class and the uh, the Rangers, right? The Army Rangers and today, it's, it's just I mean, this year, news. right? And it's headline right. news, and yet here we've got <laughs> yeah, exactly. So and you know, female generals, and so, but we don't know this, of course, and we tend to assume that we are the best country in the world, and it's just not the case. You know, when you we say we, you mean go, the we, United we, States, we, the United, the United States. So anyway, to finish that one thought, there was a Latin America right now is one of the most democratic areas in the entire world. And so that mobilization brought women in very quickly and changed their attitude towards politics, their belief that they could be in politics, and the belief of other people that women could could be in politics. And that's throughout society today. They're looking back and they're saying... Well, well I'm not really saying that they're not... Machismo is not still alive and well in Latin America. It certainly was. I was in Argentina in the summer of 19, uh, 2013, and I was struck by the re-election of um, Christina, because they call her Christina. The men, they call them by their last name, Christina, and how critical they are of her physical... Well, dear, that know, sounds familiar today, doesn't no it? No <laughs> kidding. And the fact she's had, you know, plastic surgery and all that, it's, that doesn't go away. But people are more willing to vote for women in Latin America than they, for some reason, they are here. So, I don't want, but I want to get to the, the convention, but I don't want to... 
take over the... Go ahead. <laughs> no, please do. Say what um, you need to say. I think one of the really important factors is the United States has not ratified the UN Convention on what's called CEDAW, the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Violence Against Women. Um, there are 194 countries, 187 have um, ratified this, and we have not. What's we're it say? in the company of, right, we're in the company of Iran, Sudan, Somalia, South Sudan. I mean, not, we're not in good company there. Of, it says that countries will commit to work against um, violence against women in many ways, into further women's education, to further women's um, access, to police protection. There's a whole long list of things, but it, it, it's not really enforceable. I mean, countries like Saudi Arabia have, have signed it, and other countries have signed it. So, But at the same time, it's a national recognition. It's, it's been okayed in the Senate for Relations Committee twice. It's never been brought to the floor. Why has it not been ratified? Why because of the conservative right. And What uh, is their objection? Their objection is that it will affect traditional family values, that it will, it's the opening the door to the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, that it goes against the Constitution, that, oh, and that it will open up um, equal pay for equal work for women. So what was Shirley Chisholm okay. saying to these things? And I mean, the 1970s, yeah, it's a perfect time to talk about all of these issues. All but the so here's the thing about Shirley Chisholm. Chisholm starts her, she says, well, I'm going to be the first. Somebody has to be the first. Well, she didn't think that, that she would be out there alone for so long. And to this day, she is the only woman to bring delegates to a national political convention. That was over 40 years ago. But see, here's the thing about that moment is that the... The right, the new right that Dr. Chasson Lopez mentions is on the ascendancy at the very moment that Chisholm was holding office in the late 60s and through the 70s. She left office in many ways because she was exhausted. Um, she left in 1983. She decided not to run for office in 1982, and it was because she had been working with the Reagan administration for, for two years, and she was exhausted. She came into office with a group of reforming legislators, and they thought that they really could change the direction of the country to, to increase democracy. And, and they're coming in on the heels of sort of an upheaval, a civil rights movement and then, and then feminism. So there was a sort of crisis, um, and they saw a window, and then they saw the window close. The rise of the right uh, really uh, took the wind out of the sails of, of uh, what Chisholm was working on. To give you one example, um, in 1971, so even before she ran for president, she and another New York representative, Bella Abzug, collaborated <laughs> on a um, on a child care, a universal child care yes. bill. As uh, the Child Development Act of 1971, and they got it through Congress. They got it through Congress. So much, can you imagine what wide access to child care would do? It, it would be, again, similar list to what Dr. Chasson Lopez just listed off as far as um, the countries that will not sign this agreement. It's similar countries that do not have universal child care available. Um, the United States is one, and um, the other countries on that list are not. And this is that we typically align ourselves with politically. This is an opportunity to speak to our listeners and say, sign, write a letter to your congressman and well, get this 
or woman. Signed. What's right. that? Congressman or, or woman. Congressman or woman, for right. sure. Oh, that's right. 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 <laughs> oh, that's, that's another point yes. I wanted to get to as what percentage of women are in Congress today yes. in the United States compared to other countries of the world? Yes, and please. I, and I gotta, the United States has, in the Senate, is 20%. There are 16 Democrats and four Republicans. In Congress, we have 18.2%. Um, and that's 60 Democrats and 19 Republicans. Okay, what is a country in the world that has the highest participation of women in their legislature? Anybody know? Denmark. Rwanda. Rwanda. Rwanda, 63%. Why? The recent democratization, recent mobilization. That's a key. What's the second highest? You won't get it. Bolivia. 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 Fifty-three. Yeah. See, at this point, percent. I'm not going to guess again because I'm wrong on everyone. Well, and also, Cody, I think we should point out you are the only man in the room right now. That's so. right. right, right. <laughs> He's brave. He gets a bravery. You know. Then after that, it's Cuba with forty-nine percent. Then we get to Sweden and we get to um, European countries, so, which are way ahead of us. But the United Kingdom is down there with us. So not to advocate for revolution, although I should point out Dr. Ch uh, Dr. Kerwood is teaching a class this semester about social movements, and Dr. Chasson Lopez um, uh, heavily incorporates uh, the many Latin American revolutions in the classes that she teaches. Um, but am I hearing that perhaps um, having a, a potentially long, stable democracy is not necessarily leading to increased democracy because I've heard you talk about revolution and uh, Dr. Kerwood you talked about windows opening and windows closing right. and so you know in 2008 you have Hillary Clinton what saying do she we need shattered to do? the glass, you know put at least a giant uh, hole in the glass ceiling sure you right. know, because of this movement so what do we need to do to get that window open again and then to progress through it oh, well i think it's i don't think we could separate race and and gender out too much and it and ethnicity there's a new word for this it's a fancy word called intersectionality that that these ideas in people's heads are uh, mutually constituted so that talking about um anyone anybody's campaign is you have to talk about the racial their race their ethnicity their even their you know their background from um, where they're from, because it all their social class, it all, all comes together. So it's 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 not just a gender thing; it's economic um, too. Yeah. Uh, um, before I forget, I want to say that the uh, Child Development Act of 1971, yes. which made it through both houses of Congress, was vetoed by Nixon on the advice of his aide Pat Buchanan who called it a radical piece of social legislation. So he, so he got it all in there. It was radical and it was social. And so it was just not tenable at that point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what needs to happen? Yes. Uh, well, we need democratization or we need a social movement or we need both. Let's take 1968. Okay. Coming up on 50. Coming up on right. 50. Right. Right. Yeah. right. Um, and uh, We've seen a steady decrease in democratization. So, um, so we've seen uh, the rolling back of voting rights, and we've seen a, a concurrent increase of uh, power of uh, money, 
um, in, in politics. Um, so one, one or both of those things has, has to change. And, um, yeah, Can I add a third to that? Because it's really important and it connected to the money. It is the huge disparity, the growth of wealth in the United States. Yes. And the fact that the middle class has become stationary, where the 1% has grown incredibly. And that, unbelievably, is the definition of an underdeveloped country. That is when the, the unequal dis distribution of wealth. And that has led to the mm -hmm. Citizens mm -hmm. United. Mm -hmm. I, and that um, gross disparity in wealth was beginning at the moment when Chisholm was uh, finishing in office. So that's the oh. rise of the new right. So as we're sitting here and I'm, I'm listening to this conversation, I'm learning that um, so the, Chisholm as a candidate in 1972 was called crazy. She was uh, unstable. She's an outsider. She's got radical ideas. Um, we're talking about revolutionary ideas to get a woman elected. So then I look at our current political um, contingency for um, 2016, and we've got people in the GOP that are being called crazy. We've got people in the Democratic Party being called uh, radical, socialist. Is that window opening again? Or? And, we, and we have a black movement out there. We, we have, do. Yeah. Uh, we have Black, black Lives, Lives Matter. Matter. Black Lives Matter that are sure. also getting themselves national attention and getting specific attention from uh, some candidates. They're getting specific attention from Bernie Sanders, who is one of those radical socialist candidates. So is the window opening again? And if so, who is it opening for? Well, there's a huge disparity going on in precisely because of this income uh, distribution. And um, I j we just have to remember who has brought up the term silent majority again, because silent majority was the, the watchword in Shirley Chisholm's period, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. And that was Richard Nixon. And gee, isn't it funny? Suddenly we're hearing about the silent uh -huh. majority uh -huh. <laughs> again. So for our listeners that were born probably in 1990 or after, what is the silent majority? Well, Richard Nixon, as the 1960s was a, a period of tremendous ferment with black power, brown power among Latinos, the women's movement, feminism. It was, you know, it was the sexual revolution. It was an exciting period to live through, to be yeah. perfectly honest with you. And then um, there was a, a backlash in 96, the 1968 election, Richard Nixon, and of course we're living through Vietnam. And, and the whole world is watching, uh, it's, right? It's wow, right? There you go. And um, and there's a backlash with Richard Nixon, and he comes in saying, "I represent the silent majority." Of course, his positions today would be pretty left. Yes, right. he was for single payer, yes. you know, yeah, and but a guaranteed annual income. How do you That's like right. That? That's right. But nevertheless, that is when I mean, I left the United States in 1969. I went to study in Mexico, and I lived in Mexico for almost 18 years. And I came back, and Ronald Reagan was president, and I practically didn't recognize the United States, having left mm -hmm. the end of the 60s and come back in 86. I was in shock. Before I ask Cody to summarize and take us out, I do want to say, so if students here at the University of Kentucky are fired up about these issues, uh, what can they do? What classes can they take to learn more about this? What books can they read? What movies can they watch? Oh, boy. Read the documentary on Shirley Chisholm. Yeah, the documentary on Shirley Chisholm uh, is called um, Chisholm 72, Unbought and Unbossed. I know... Uh, 
let's see. What a great name. What a great title. <laughs> I, am, I am fairly certain that the library owns a copy. And, um, and so that's a great place to start. Uh, you could take my course, which is uh, African American History since 1865, which tells you how some of these policies came about and some of the hidden racial dimensions of them. Um, and um, and I, I urge uh, students to actually pay attention to the news in general. Um, if you're confused about an issue, uh, go ahead and, 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 and look at it. I think one, something we haven't talked about is the lack of information. Dr. Chancellor-Lopez, what do you have on tap for students? Well, I teach Latin America, so uh, anybody who's interested in Mexico, a country with which we have a 2,000-mile border, and yet people are completely ignorant of what goes on in Mexico, uh, and it's so easy to blame uh, Mexican undocumented um, uh, people as well as the drug trade for Mexico without understanding what role we have in it. It's not just the, or the global are you currently uh, teaching a class about gender and I'm currently teaching gender and um, and women in Latin America. Uh, next semester I teach Mexico. Um, hopefully next year I'll be teaching a course on modern Latin America if it ever gets through UK core. And um, it's important to learn about our neighbors and other countries. It gives you a perspective on the United States and and see how maybe we can improve ourselves. It's um, I think we can elect a woman, but we don't have to elect her because it's a woman, right. right? We have to elect the person, the best person, but the person who brings diversity and an understanding of diversity and the diversity of the United States. You know, in not too many years, the United States is the the white is going to be the major the minority, and this is, I think, part of this conservative back backlash. But it's not a bad thing because we have all kinds of people, and we've always been an immigrant. So, I also teach about immigration in my course. So, we've got 30 seconds here for all three of you. Please jump in and say whatever you can say. From what we know in history, you've got the Republican woman president, you've got the Democratic female president, you've got them both in the room, and they want to know how do I get elected in today's society. What kind of advice can you give them? Well, Michelle Bachelet, when she was just reelected, um, the conservative candidate was a woman. So Chile did it. Okay. And actually, at the, the moment, a Democratic uh, candidate who is a woman has a very fine line to tread. And um, uh, unfortunately, follow, following that line is really what will get a woman elected. It won't necessarily make a good president. So, okay. So, and Wendy, having worked be, on the campaign? Be fearless like Shirley. Take the title from that documentary and incorporate it into your campaign. Yes. Can I, can I say one more? Oh, Absolutely. Please, please. please do. I would ask everybody who's listening out there to not judge a woman by the way she looks or by if she's aggressive, but by what policies she's going to promise us to implement or whoever. Because we don't characterize men by the way they look. Indeed. All right? Only maybe Chris Christie gets a little bit of that. But, but I have heard so much about Hillary's, you know, whatever her hair is, and that's just not what we're interested in at present. Who ever talked about George Bush's hair? Right. Well, then, thank goodness she's past childbearing years. Otherwise, we'd be hearing about whether or not she's going to have to take maternity leave from the Oval Office. So, which we just this morning, Yahoo stocks dropped 
after their CEO declared that she's going to be taking two weeks of maternity leave. Well, yay for Hillary, who said she's a grandma, because I'm a grandma, and it's great. <laughs> so maybe it's time that we have a grandma in the White House. <laughs> exactly. So, in the you. Oval Office. So, all right, well, thank you very much. Long story short, thanks Dr. Francie Chazen-Lopez, Dr. Anastasia Kerwood, and Wendy Zins for speaking with us. Will this be the election cycle that makes history again by electing the first female president of the United States? Only the votes can tell. Thank you.